The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Before we dive into the show, I have to tell you that The Anxious Achiever, the book, is live in the world, and I would be so grateful if you picked up a copy wherever you buy books. Now, today's topic. When it comes to mental health, different things work for different people. You've heard guests and experts on the show talking about trying all different kinds of medications, modalities, even therapists, until they found the treatment that was right for them. And on the show, we're not telling anyone what they should or shouldn't do, but we're sharing conversations around research, psychological concepts, and practical stories to fight stigma and help people talk more about mental health, especially as it pertains to their work and their leadership. And today we're talking about something that's been in the headlines a lot, psychedelics. Later in the show, we'll speak with Allison Meister, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Behavior at the International Institute for Management Development in Lausanne, Switzerland. Allison is doing cutting-edge research on the impact of psychedelics on work and leadership. It's inspired in part by her own journey. I remember the war on drugs very clearly. We had police officers come to our classrooms and basically tell us that, you know, we would die if we tried any of these and that people were throwing themselves off, off rooftops when on LSD and things like that. So I grew up very, very scared of trying anything like this. It was, it was through my work in mental health where I started reading a lot about advances being made in neuroscience and in clinical research and psychotherapy, where people were making huge breakthroughs and making huge progress on issues like anxiety and depression. And I kind of said, well, there's something going on here and maybe I should relax my own assumptions. And so I basically said, I'm going to try this out before I start writing about it. And before I start talking to leaders about some of these advances, I'm going to see for myself what it's like. But first, some groundwork. We're going to dive into some of the science and the research being done around psychedelic substances with Liebert Lester III. He's a practicing therapist in Connecticut and important for this conversation he is working on researching psychedelics as a treatment for depression or trauma. Liebert also works to ensure that more people of color, in particular, are included in clinical trials for psychedelics. Here's my conversation with Liebert Lester. Why did you become a clinician? Ooh, that's a great question. I became a clinician because originally I was always interested in the life stories of people around me. Mm. I got a lot of enjoyment from hearing how people tell their own unique stories. And then when I got into college and I realized some of the conversations we were having were closer to that mental health realm as opposed to just lived experiences, 
I made that fuller pivot to psychology for my undergrad at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. And then for my master's program, I was actually researching in a psychedelic studies lab. Mm. So that got me more interested in the diagnostic piece of mental health, which led to me pursuing a master's in counselor education. And now I'm actually finishing up a certificate program in clinical mental health counseling. Did you grow up going to therapy yourself or do you go to therapy yourself? Yeah, so I've been to individual and group therapy, but growing up, no. The extent of the mental health conversations was, you know, the the typical ones. How are you doing? How was your day? Things like that. Mm-hmm. I got exposed to counseling as a field my senior year of high school because there was actually a psychology class I took. And I realized as a psych major, this wasn't just something that I was interested in because of the job. I was like, no, this is how I feel on a day-to-day basis. I want to yeah. know how my loved ones are feeling. I want to communicate my needs so that I feel as best as possible around my loved ones. And because Morehouse College is an all-men's school, though it is right next to an all-women's and a co-ed school in Spelman and Clark, mm-hmm. I was like, wow, among men and more specifically Black men, these are unique conversations that are so new to us at 18 and 19, et cetera. But when I thought about my elders, I was like, some of these Congos are new for them too. Because? Because many conversations of mental health period are taboo. And I think especially among men, there's an added layer of, Mm -hmm. let's say, more tabooness. So in addition to therapy, you work on research around psychedelics and the treatment of mental illness and mental health challenges. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that and why this is of interest to you. Sure. It's of interest to me because one thing that psychedelics have been evidenced to do through research is to increase neuroplasticity, which is just a unique way of saying the process of learning, of growing our ability to be receptive to new information. And in pop culture, we hear people reference psychedelics like shrooms, for example, as a part of their spiritual, their self-awareness journey. And in research, it actually takes a similar way. Of course, it's a little more structured and we're checking some of those more common things like maybe a client's blood pressure, you know, making sure that they have sobered up enough to now complete a ride home or have somebody picking them up. But the point is that we use it as just another tool to help clients reach wellness. Because once again, a core part of therapy is trying to understand, well, what are the concerns? You know, what are the needs? And then what, in an attempt to address them so far, has not quite gotten you to the goal you'd like to reach? First of all, could you define psychedelic, why we call them psychedelics? And what about the psychedelic experience is a useful therapy tool? So when I'm talking about psychedelics, we are more specifically referring to, let's say, substances more so than drugs that elicit some of those hallucinogenic states, you know, where you might see things or perceive things that otherwise, when, of course, not engaging with a psychedelic, you would not see. And the benefit is that through this change in consciousness, 
the client becomes more open to information that maybe was really hard to sit with or consider. For example, one of our psychedelic therapies that we tend to do for clients based off their diagnosis is looking at maybe depression or perhaps trauma because both of those lived experiences can be characterized by routines that are done consistently that may not be beneficial, but feel that way because maybe the symptoms like avoidance, Mm -hmm. like low mood or low energy are hard to resist. But by opening up, once again, that ability for the brain to learn, the clients get that ability to recognize, oh, this is where this stems from. And also, these are the steps I can take to change it. It's really another boost of that ability to affect change in our lives with the therapeutic support, because we are still there processing in real time with clients, both before taking the substance, while actively on the substance, and then even when the substance is now out of the client system. What is it about the state of hallucination that opens up the neural pathways or opens up a client? Hmm. Ooh, there are a lot of answers to that. Um, Give me them all. (laughs) (laughs) I think the most concise one is that it opens clients up to the new possibilities that once again, through our habits and our routines, we accidentally have blocked off. Because the fundamental point of therapy is life changes. And while that can seem easily said and stated, many of us may find when we reflect on our daily habits, there are a lot of routines we've gotten into that even when we acknowledge, ooh, this is a little unproductive, there can be some reluctance to change because a familiar headache does feel safer than an unfamiliar one. Mm. And that's where many of us get stuck because we might accidentally assume all of the unfamiliar is stressful, is unsafe, is dangerous. When that's not the case, and we need to be willing to find out because there are always reasons to say no, but we often have to create those reasons to say yes and to then change something. And the hallucination helps us create those reasons? Well, it more specifically through, once again, further reflecting on what comes up for us. Because remember, the brain is very unique at closing off, at shrinking, at diminishing the information that we are accessing based of our environments, but not consciously aware of. Mm. And to clarify a little bit, the hallucinations can be a part of the psychedelic experience, but aren't the only component of it. But only that receptivity, that resistance in perhaps shutting down a thought or immediately avoiding it is really what opens the learning process. Because for example, if we encounter a stressful experience, we tend to tell ourselves, move past it. Mm. Don't look at it. I don't have time for that. But in that state of altered consciousness, you now might have more tolerance to look at what may have been a harsher memory, a harder life experience. And now you can make a new meaning out of it because you're no longer avoiding it. Because now you're open to actually talking about and reflecting on it rather than immediately trying to dismiss it. Does it lower your inhibitory control? Mm, It can. 
Um, of course, there are bodily effects to taking the substance as well. Some clients have actually thrown up in session as well. But these are all supports we plan around and we typically have the client seated or laying down. Because once again, it is a substance. So your physical ability to get around is impacted and we certainly don't want anybody to fall over which is why we do it in a structured manner. There typically are two clinicians present for any psychedelic therapies. Can you name some of the popular psychedelics that you're particularly interested in and working with? Sure. So our clinic works a good bit with ketamine, but we have a lot of connections with individuals and practitioners that do ayahuasca ceremonies. And what I always find so interesting about the ways that ceremonies are done abroad, as opposed to how the therapies are done in the U.S., is the ability to structure and manage the environment. For example, a psychedelic study here or even a psychedelic therapy here is more likely to be in an office. We're (laughs) going to be in our professional attire, you know, the (laughs) whole nine. Whereas abroad, if it was like a retreat, It might be in a different environment. It could be at a beach. It could be at all these different areas. And once again, the brain is using the information around us to make these new meanings. And I'm always thinking of how the environment, even down to light levels in a space, affects the therapeutic journey. So talk about how it can help for trauma, because I would also imagine it can bring back trauma more visibly when you're on your trip, when you're in your altered state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're actually right. To talk a little bit more about what trauma therapies can look like, at my clinic, we do more of prolonged exposure, but another one is EMDR. Mm-hmm. And in prolonged exposure, we actually have the client in incremental phases because we have to plan around their tolerance level, but talk about the traumatic experience so that they can begin to normalize it in their own lives is something that happened to them. The importance of that is, once again, we can't make new meaning of it if we continue to see it as so dangerous we can't even consider it. Because we have to build the client's ability to coexist with the reminders, which once again may actually be what heightens the anxiety or feeds the avoidance or leads to the sleep disturbance. The benefit of it is that as the clients are making the new meaning, They're also learning things about the traumatic event that maybe were hard to sit with before because maybe there was guilt, maybe there was shame present. Mm. But through this revisiting, they become able to recognize this is a thing that happened to me, but it's not my fault. And we have to do a good bit of work around stigma because sometimes that shame or that guilt doesn't stem just from the client. There are likely outside factors that are making them feel that way or are maybe telling them that. So are you saying that the experience of being on the substance lessens a sense of shame or guilt that might block you from having new insights or developing more adaptive attitudes about a trauma? I think that's on the right track. I would more specifically say it makes the clients more open to acknowledging that the shame is there and the guilt is there, but that's not all that is there. Hmm. How about the use of psychedelics for anxiety? That's something I'm I'm less familiar. I feel like I hear about less. Yeah. So 
off the top of my head, when I think about the work with psychedelics and anxiety, it still functions in the similar way of we want you to be more open to these life changes. We want you to acknowledge that these are changes that you can make and would be reasonable. But when I think of the anxiety work that I've done, at least so far, that's not always in the psychedelic realm because we Mm -hmm. have a good bit of efficacy with therapy outside of that. Though, of course, new research is always being created. So I'm actually 100% sure somebody somewhere is not only doing that work, but is also getting those similar outcomes that we're seeing with those other areas. I have to tell you, about a year and a half ago, I was going through a really sort of major depressive episode. And it was recommended that I get ketamine infusions. Mm -hmm. And... I went and met with a psychiatrist and we talked about it. And I said, am I going to feel like I'm losing control? Mm. And he said, well, you are going to go on a trip. And my anxiety at that point, the mere thought that I was not going to be in control for a few hours, I chose not to take ketamine. I actually tried TMS, Mm. transcranial magnetic simulation, I think it is, instead for the depression But I've always been curious what a series of ketamine infusions might do for me if I could just somehow get over the mental block of my anxiety. Yeah. So I think you bring up two very great points on that piece of control, because that's actually why for the therapeutic approach, we have to assess what the client feels like is their capacity. Mm. Because yeah, that idea of giving up control can be a lot of people's source of anxiety. Yeah. That's actually something that we all often have to work around because once again, the life choices, the life habits that we have often are in some way functioning in our minds as keeping us safe. Yeah. Even though we acknowledge, yeah, it probably is stressing me out too. (laughs) (laughs) As to what it can add for you, I think it would really add that acknowledgement that a perceived lack of control is not dangerous. The reality is, and this is something that I bring up a good bit with my clients, is that there are a good bit of things we haven't had control on that we still love and are super helpful. For example, we probably had no control with creating these mics or these computers or (laughs) any of the equipment we use, but that doesn't bother us. When we actually look around perhaps our rooms, our cars, anything, a lack of control is all around us and it's so normalized that we don't consciously recognize it. One of the first things that I always try to do is to boost my clients' insight around their concerns to show them there are actually ways where you're not in control, for example, and the world isn't exploding, the ice caps aren't melting. Well, they are. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you're right, but I meant to more specifically say right now in this moment, (laughs) great catch, because they are. But just to to highlight that the more you learn about your fear, rather than just seeing it as fact, the easier it becomes to plan around it. Because more often than not, through emotional reasoning, we think what I feel is fact. But what we feel is actually information. And while it's valid, it may not always be informed. Mm -hmm. Feelings aren't facts. What's some research on psychedelics that's really getting you excited these days? 
Ooh, yeah, great question. I actually think we are getting closer and closer to also doing marijuana-assisted psychotherapy, which I think is really cool in the context of the decriminalization, Mm -hmm. as well as overall boosting public knowledge about its benefits. Because once again, it's also been shown in evidence to increase neuroplasticity, just like the ketamine or just like ayahuasca. And I feel like from a social justice perspective, that will be one more support to support past individuals that have been incarcerated for marijuana possession or anything like that. Because I think what happened with any conversation of like the war on drugs, for example, is that there was all this stigma that was attached to substances and then people we associate substances with. Mm -hmm. So thus the learning was really blocked. Because for example, we know that people use substances to cope. And we know that if you're using a substance to cope, you probably would benefit from a therapist, from a counselor. But instead, we saw this pivot to say, nope, we're going to punish you for this. Mm. And I really feel like that was a large disservice that feeds all mental health stigma because that directly relates to my clients with any diagnosis that are reluctant to take medication that is another tool because of that stigma of, oh, if I cope, I'm a bad person and bad people go to jail and X and Y and Z. You know, it is funny how I find in the cultural discussion of all of this stuff, there's so much fascination and the mainstreaming of it has happened much more quickly than I would have thought. Mm -hmm. But there is still that stigma Yeah. Because, you know, of the years of growing up where certainly psychedelics were considered for far out hippies, you know, how does the research you're doing tackle that stigma? I think it really starts with assessing who you work with, who you include in your studies, and the lengths you'll go to to diversify your work. Because, for example, what attracted me to the lab at the University of Connecticut that I worked at is that Dr. Monica Williams was very forward with saying, we're doing work with diverse groups. The Mm -hmm. participant pool was never just white or never just white and college educated or never just white and male and college educated. (laughs) The work was really put in to make sure that our data could be informed by a variety of people's experiences. And I think even now, as both a Black researcher and a Black therapist, I'm always reminded of how much my clients, for example, benefit from my presence as well as my community. But it's on the treatment programs and the training programs like universities and colleges to make sure that in addition to participants, we're also seeking and training workers that know these best practices that maybe we don't because that's the benefit of new inputs and new lived experiences. You now have all of the talent in-house, but you have to support it too. Yeah. I know that a focus of yours has been helping to create more diverse research pools mm-hmm. and looking at how few people of color are often studied in in drug trials. Why is that happening still today? <laughs> what are the barriers and how are you working against them? I think the barriers 
start with the fact that as a society, there still is this large aversion to looking at how we got here. I think of how in certain states, for example, in regards to like education and even how history is told, there is a push to not be as authentic or even add to the authenticity as possible because many people are uncomfortable learning about biases they may have, whether it's a bias that was socially taught or learned from their lived experience. Mm -hmm. But I ascribe to the ideology that bias is best planned around and named so that we can inform ourselves on it. For example, as a man, it's on me to make sure I'm watching shows written by, books written by women. As a heterosexual person, it's on me to seek out shows and books and information sources by queer individuals. We all have to do the individual work, but also assess the rooms we're in and ask, well, who's not in here, but also how can we recruit them? Mm. Because it's easy to fall into that trap of, oh, well, you know, maybe they're not applying. Maybe they're not popular. But in the same way we can look up outfits or restaurants, et cetera, we have to put in that effort to find those information sources because our gaps are our responsibility. I'm curious. I'm thinking about traditional psychopharmacology. I'm assuming that most of these drugs were developed with mostly white clinical participants and maybe even mostly male clinical participants, given the age of some of them. Is that true? Yeah. uh, Traditionally, that is what we tend to see. While I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, I think about 3% in any of these mental health spaces of the pool is researchers, clinicians, et cetera, of color. And I think only about four to maybe 8% are women, whether they are women of color or white women. So all of those still speak to this entire conversation of, hey, who are we having in mind and who historically has had the keys to this? So if you had a client who was coming in who was saying, you know, I'm thinking about this as an option for my therapy, for my treatment, what questions do I need to ask myself to help make a decision? Okay. What would you tell them? I think one of the most important questions is to ask the client their comfort level. Because I know that as the pop culture acclaim rises in conversations of psychedelics, some clients have come in thinking, okay, you know, this is the thing. This is going to bring me this drastic change. And make no mistake, it might. But therapy is like the brain gym. You're going to (laughs) have to come in and you still have to work. And I remind clients it's okay to be daunted by that. I've had clients start take a break for a period of time and then come back. I've had clients start maybe after a year or two return. Everybody's therapeutic journey looks different. And traditionally, we think I have to come in and come out. And I try to validate for clients that this is indeed something else that will be on your plate. So you have to take care of yourself outside of session to do this work because maybe it's not the right time. For example, Mm. maybe you're a student and you're trying to work, 
and maybe you just had a child. <laughs> so that's <sighs> that's a lot to juggle. By <sighs> affirming for clients, I see you ascribing for wellness and I want you to acknowledge your own capacity. They become more able to recognize, okay, you're right. This is something I want to plan for because I do want to be able to give as much as I can to this. So what does all this research have to do with the context of work and career? Enter Alison Meister. Beyond possible treatments for depression and trauma that many are studying around psychedelics, there are possible effects around leadership and interpersonal relations at work that researchers are studying. Meister is based in Switzerland, where she's a professor at IMD. Her research sits at the intersection of identity, diversity, and mental health, and well-being in the context of leadership. And Dr. Meister is doing early studies on the impact of psychedelics on mental health, leadership, and work. Here's our conversation. When you're working with executives with leaders, do they by and large understand that work triggers their anxiety or is that a journey you have to lead them on sometimes? No, I think it's it's so interesting because even the word anxiety is so stigmatized in the workplace, right? So when we work on that level and work in the field of kind of stress and mental health, it's it's really taking them up first on a journey of looking at what's happening around the world and kind of relating themselves to it. And if I ask the question, what's interesting, I was doing a keynote for 400 people last year, and we asked them the question, raise your hand if you know someone who suffers from a mental illness or a disorder of some sort or suffers from mental health challenges. Nearly every single person raises their hand in the audience. Nearly every single person. So it touches us all. But it's been really taboo in the workplace, as you know. And and I'm just so excited that more and more leaders are now coming and saying, actually, I want to learn about this, whether they're suffering or they want to help others or just create better workplaces to work for. So as we know, the burnout statistics are just skyrocketing. People are leaving and they're looking for workplaces where they, you know, feel better and they feel like they can bring their best self. So I think it's, it's exciting to see that more and more people are interested and talking about it and, and seeking to change their leadership and, and their workplaces. Well, one of the things that I love about you and your work and, and, and all of the, the researchers and academics I get to meet in this community is that your job is to be at the cutting edge. So yeah. I wanted to talk to you about your interest in psychedelics. Yes. Talk about cutting edge and talk about, <laughs> <laughs> and talk about stigmatization, really. Um, you know, it's funny because I consider myself a, a pracademic, I guess you could say. I love to take insights from the world of science and medicine and uh, neuroscience and uh, psychology and clinical psychology and, and apply them to the workplace and see what is there that we can learn about cutting edge research that's happening in these fields. And how can we take that into the workplace and say, look, you know, these are some things that managers can do or leaders can do or organizations should know. Mm -hmm. And so I became interested in psychedelics and the effect that they're, the role that they're playing in the, in the movement now in mental health in more the clinical space and say, okay, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for leaders and what should leaders know? Yeah. I mean, it's so funny. We were at dinner 
and we started talking about it. I think we, in the context of our stressed out lives (laughs) as working moms, probably. (laughs) (laughs) And it sort of came up organically because I think that a lot of us, certainly in the field, were curious. We're reading all this positive research, but we grew up with words around these drugs that were extremely stigmatizing and, and just plain scary. What piqued your interest and, and like, what made you think, oh, this is valuable. I should learn more about this. Oh, you're so right. I remember the war on drugs very clearly. So I'm Canadian and it was a big deal there as well. And we had police officers come to our classrooms and basically tell us that, you know, we would die if we tried any of these and that people were throwing themselves off, off rooftops Mm -hmm. when on LSD and things like that. So I grew up very, very scared of trying anything like this. And I guess it was, it was through my work in mental health where I started reading a lot about advances being made in neuroscience and in clinical research and psychotherapy where people were making huge breakthroughs and making huge progress on issues like anxiety and depression and, you know, existential challenges, eating disorders. I mean, addiction. And I kind of said, wow there's something going on here and maybe I should relax my own assumptions. And so I basically said, I'm going to try this out before I start writing about it. (laughs) Before I start talking to leaders about some of these advances, I'm going to see for myself what it's like and do some research in this space. And so I've kind of moved forth on a personal side, but also really on the research side and exploring what are some of the insights and what we can do with leaders in this space. So tell us about your personal experience. So I'm relatively new to this, to this whole world. And like, like most of us, so it's, it's booming around the world. I think I just read a statistic that over 5 million Americans alone tried some form of psychedelic last year. But for me, my journey kind of, I, it started with ayahuasca and ayahuasca. I'm not sure if you know, but it's a traditional tea or brew that comes from South America. It's from the rainforest and it's, it's really a traditional ceremonial, spiritual psychedelic that's used in indigenous communities. And so there's really a link to that world. And a psychotherapist friend of mine, she kind of introduced me to it and I, and I gave it a try and I went to a ceremony. I've been to several <laughs> since over the last several years and I just saw firsthand the effects it can have on so many different patterns of thinking and for myself, but also the others in the community. And so I think it was a magical and mystical experience. And I think um, having that and then looking into the research side, I think there's just so much potential for this industry and for both people who have mental illnesses and disorders and, and di- clinical diagnoses, but also for what's called the betterment of well individuals. I think Michael Pollan coined that term in his latest book. Will AI improve our lives or exterminate the species? What would it take to abolish poverty? Are you eating enough fermented foods? These are some of the questions we've tackled recently on The Next Big Idea. I'm Rufus Griscom, and every week I sit down with the world's leading thinkers for in-depth conversations that will help you live, work, and play smarter. Follow The Next Big Idea wherever you get your podcasts. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. 
Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Do you mind sharing a personal insight that you felt like you unraveled or something that was really important for you during one of your experiences? Yeah. Yes. Sure. It's uh, you know, it's hard. It, it's almost feels crazy to be talking about this on a podcast, but it it shows how how far we've come in terms of destigmatizing some of this. But yeah. I think for me, I'm fascinated by identity. I've been an identity researcher since I did my PhD over a decade ago, and for me, I I was looking for insights into some of my patterns around literally around anxious achievement some of my 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 relationship to work and my relationship to accomplishments and kind of my how that started and some of the patterns and limitations that is brought to my life that's brought lots of opportunities that anxious achievement side but really um where did that pattern start and how? And everybody has a very different experience when they macro dose different forms of psychedelics. But for me, it just took me right back to my childhood. And, and I saw memories and visions of myself, literally where this kind of got embedded, where this became part of me, where this kind of link to never resting and needing to never being able to celebrate my success or, or achievements and just doing, 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 doing. And, and, and I think the manifestation of that and where it became part of me became really evident. And then it helped me rewire a little bit my relationship with uh, myself and really have some compassion for myself, which I think the world needs more of. Gosh, I mean, I've been trying to do that through years and years of therapy. So <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, haven't we all? <laughs> haven't we all? That's so fascinating. Was that a specific question you wanted to explore before you took the drug? Well, it's interesting. I think... We when it comes to psychedelics, we, we call it setting intentions, kind of mm. not expectations, because you can, you can try to, <laughs> to explore certain topics, but the medicines often take you to what you need, not what you want. Mm. <laughs> and so I did kind of set some intentions around exploring some of the, the challenges I'm facing, maybe with respect to work or with respect to relationships in my life. And it, it did help me uncover some things. And what's interesting about ayahuasca is you can kind of engage with the medicine while you're in it. So it's, you're not totally passive. You can kind of ask questions and, and, and work with it while you're in it. And it lets you access different parts of your brain and your subconscious. And it's fascinating. So some recent work has just come out on ayahuasca, the, the psychedelic, you know, the, the form of that is DMT. And uh, some fascinating work has just come out from the Imperial College, I think, around uh, Timmerman's work on what parts of the brain start to speak to each other in these different experiences and how it really does unlock different pathways in your brain. So it's just, uh, it's fascinating stuff on the, the more scientific side, but also on the spiritual side. I never really considered myself much of a spiritual person before, and it really has changed my relationship to myself, to others, and, and to the environment around me personally. That's so interesting. C can you just give a layperson's overview of what's happening in your brain? So, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist, and I'm sure there's neuroscientists who can go you know, into much depth onto exactly what's happening, but they work with the serotonin receptors in your brain. And basically, 
like SSRIs, they work with serotonin receptors. And what they do is they activate different parts of your brain and allow them to speak to each other. And, and not just your brain, it, it's all a mind-body connection. So it's it's very much a physical and mental auditory visual experience that you have. And so you some people form visions, some people see flashing lights or or different patterns. I've never had that kind of stereotypical psychedelic experience where you see the, the swirling colors. No um, flying I, pigs <laughs> like in Dumbo. No flying, or I haven't had hallucinations. No, not, none of that. I've had more just visions and memories and engaging um, in patterns like that. Well, with ayahuasca, for example, different medicines or different drugs do different things. Have you had painful memories that you needed sort of the help of a nearby therapist in the moment? Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is there's so much work being done and there's so many experiences that are absolutely painful, but they have a yeah. different quality to them. So for me, I have absolutely had the experience where I thought I was dying the first time I did it. I was like, oh my gosh, in my head, I was saying, what have I done? You know, I'm dying. And, and I think that can be considered, you know, a, in air quotes, a, a bad trip or a difficult situation or, yeah. or a difficult trip. And I've, I've had people that I've been in ceremonies with who have really engaged with traumatic experiences from their past or their childhood. And, you know, if you look into the research around, you know, these difficult experiences is that a couple of things happen. First of all, most people who've had really tough experiences actually say they would still do it again <gasps> because it really changes your relationship with that experience and you grow from it. So you really do come through the experience and, and feel like you've grown. Second of all, it can actually rewire certain relationships with tough experiences. You kind of look at difficult experiences you've had from the perspective of self-compassion. You're detached from it, mm -hmm. um, almost mindful looking in and feeling a sense of compassion for yourself. So well, you can have some very difficult experiences. Often people still find this kind of experience has been um, life-changing for them in a positive way. Mm -hmm. So I've had difficult experiences where you know, I've, I've challenged my relationship to myself or where this has come from or negative thought patterns where I, I could just see it so clearly. But then it almost, it works to kind of help disassociate that trigger from um, the negative pattern that you might have in the real world with it. You're doing research on how psychedelics can be used in a leadership context. What's your vision, given all that you know and all that you're learning? What, what question are you trying to answer? I was just reading Gabor Mate's book around, you know, as nobody's normal, right? We all have, a, yeah, it's a myth that we're all normal. I think that there's so much potential to help people in organizations. As I was mentioning, we spend so much time at work. And work is such an important part of who we are. And I think there's so much suffering that happens in the workplace due to, for example, toxic leadership or just our unhealthy relationships with work or with ourselves or with relationships or whatever it might be. And I think that psychedelics offer, um, I, I hope will offer in the future, maybe a different way to go deeper with leadership, to go deeper with self-awareness, self-understanding, and to help kind of boost leader self-awareness, connection to others, things like empathy. And some really interesting work has been done around nature-relatedness. So mm. your relationship with 
nature and, and with the environment around you. So just imagine the potential there is for change in the world if we can help leaders become better versions of themselves, deal with their emotions better, feel more empathy, feel more connected to others in the world. Because leaders and organizations, it, you know, even just moving the needle on one can have such cascading ripple effects throughout an organization and into people's personal lives. I've just seen so much damage done by toxic leaders and organizations and how much potential there is when leaders are more transformational and they feel better about themselves. And the They're world. happier. I know. I mean, I, I always say the reason why anxiety is such a powerful lens through which to look at your leadership is because if you're anxious and you're not dealing with it, you're acting it out on other people. Exactly. And they are suffering. No, they are suffering and they're bringing that home and they're, mm-hmm. you know, passing that suffering on and to their children and to their partners. And I just think, imagine if we could interrupt some of that behavior and make people feel like better versions of themselves. And so for me, clearly, I don't want to run in and start handing these out in the workplace, (laughs) but I am um, getting involved in some studies and working with neuroscientists and working with clinical researchers around the world, trying to help support the move from doing studies in this space in the clinical setting. So more, you know, with, with disorders and illnesses, which is wonderful. And how do we apply this to the working world and to leaders and to healthy individuals? So I'm really excited about some of the studies that we're working on, or I'm supporting um, neuroscientists in. Can you give us a sneak peek of any of them? Ooh, yeah. Or the design? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So one of them actually is with Milan Scheidegger and his team at the University of Zurich. So they are working with a spinoff from ETH and ETH at University of Zurich and a spinoff that has created a form of what's called pharmawaska. So it's a more controlled ayahuasca. So ayahuasca itself is a brew that is not standardized. And so they've kind of made a pharmawaska. So a, a pill essentially mm-hmm. that you can take with DMT and harmine. So they've, they've replicated it and tested it and it works. I'm supporting a study they're doing where we're actually taking this pharmawaska, which is DMT, and using this with leaders. So we'll be hopefully we'll be launching this study later this year. It's under ethics approval now, which you can imagine takes some time. But we'll be working with healthy individuals, air quote normal <laughs> healthy leaders, and doing a study in, in in ceremonial and more group settings where they they get to work with facilitators and take this and and see how it impacts their leadership. And in particular, we're looking at self-awareness, we're looking at nature-relatedness, self-compassion, reactivity of themselves as leaders, essentially. And nature-relatedness, why? How is that a positive quality for a leader? Well, if you can imagine that the world right now needs better leadership when it comes to sustainability, right? It's a, we've got lots of destruction happening to the environment around the world. And so, whereas just one of the questions we're looking into is, does this change your relationship with the environment? Because if you think, if leaders change their relationship with themselves, with others, with the context and the environment around them, they might make some different decisions when it comes to investing or the impact of, of some of their work decisions on the world. And one of the coolest things that we see about, you know, in psychedelic work, they do have the potential to help people bring about lasting change. So the the brain becomes more plastic. It opens up when you're in one of these experiences and you can actually kind of change patterns of ways of thinking. We've seen actually changes come out to things like openness. It can inspire creativity in some sense and, and mystical experiences. And I think that really 
um, it gives people a different relationship with their sense of purpose mm -hmm. and their mental models about the world around them. So I just think that in exploring that with leaders and then doing some work around how they're making sense of their experience, talking to them about some of the decisions they're making and how this experience was with them, we can better understand how these might be used later on. You know? Yeah. It sounds like, you know, part of what the psychedelics do is a lot of what like Bessel van der Kolk talks about in trauma work and trauma integration is, is that you are able to better integrate things mm -hmm. into a story that makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Versus and something that you're fighting against. And, and the, the studies happening in, in psychedelics, absolutely. The word integration is, is key to the whole experience. So you can go and do this and then just run back to your regular life and, and, and you can dive right straight back into your old patterns. But integration is that process of kind of working with this experience, understanding your new insights and changing your relationship to them and then laying down new pathways, laying down new alternative ways of acting and being and doing and leading. And so that, that word integration is really key, really mm. key. One thing, I, and I've done a little reading on this, I think there is a valid criticism here. Mm -hmm. And you see this a lot in terms of Western corporate leadership practice that is inspired by long holding indigenous traditions, mm -hmm. Eastern traditions. Mm -hmm. you know, there's been much written about colonizing yoga and you know, that there is, is there a sense out there that you ever worry about that, you know, the corporate beast is just going to take something ancient and indigenous that we stole and turn it and into another product? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. That is a huge, that is a huge ethical issue in consideration of this whole industry, really. So, I mean, you know, any research that's done in this space and any kind of commercialization in my kind of perspective and the, from the ethical perspective needs to be done with respect for an integration of the traditional cultures in which they originated. And I think that it is one of my biggest fears. So I'm really excited about this potential, but I always get really nervous around things like this, exactly like you said. So this isn't about extraction, about taking something from them and taking it and making money from it. And you will see that the industry right now is just skyrocketing. So Bloomberg is estimating that by 2025, it'll be over 8 billion, the industry. We see organizations and companies going public and lots of biotech happening in this space. Yeah. And ketamine it, clinics popping up yes, everywhere. Yeah. Ketamine clinics popping up. And, and, and so I think. This is something that we have to pay careful attention to. And I know in this study with Reconnect Labs that's making the pharmawaska, they're paying really close attention to and working really with the cultures and going to South America and talking about it and reciprocity and how do we work with you and how do we give back and how do we do this in a way that really respects and embeds the culture and the ceremonial aspect and really appreciates and respects not just appropriates and takes. Mm. And I think that that is definitely a danger of this kind of work. And so I think as we do this and talk about it, we need to educate, we need to learn about it. We need to um, acknowledge that mm -hmm. this isn't something that we created ourselves, right? This has been around in all societies for a long, long time. Yeah. It's so my last question. And this is a question for all of us who specialize in workplace mental health is, Great. So I become more self-aware. I integrate past trauma. I'm more open-minded, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Am I going to have better executive function? Am I going to make better decisions? Like, am I going to be a better 
leader in the way that I think I should be a better leader? Ooh, good question. And I guess that all comes down to how do you define better leadership, right? And so there's the, the, am I going to make yeah, more money? For yeah, my company? exactly. Exactly. And that isn't that kind of, isn't that kind of sad? Sometimes we say, Oh, can it, can I just work more hours now? <laughs> no. And so if we think of leadership as really leadership of the future, I hope is that kind of integration of the mind, body, spirit. And I think when it comes to, you know, task performance and our relationship with ourselves and others at work, I think this will make people better leaders. First of all, if it's done with that intention to hopefully make myself be a more connected, compassionate, empathetic, caring leader that makes positive decisions for myself, for others, for society. And so I guess if you define leadership along those terms, what we do know from leadership research is that more transformational leaders, more empathetic leaders, compassionate leaders, kind leaders actually do inspire their followers. They keep their followers. The followers are more loyal. We're willing to do more for leaders that we feel that actually that lead with a sense of purpose. We are really willing to work harder and be more engaged in our work and be excited about our work when we're in an environment where we feel that our leaders want us to thrive and have the best for us in mind. And so I do hope that, yes, this will help people become better versions of themselves at work. But of course, of course, there's no magic pill for things like this. And so I always get worried that there's this, there's this big hype around psychedelics at the moment and everybody's excited and which is wonderful in some sense. And then in other, there's, of course, there's dangers involved with this. And we need to be really, these are very powerful, powerful drugs and they have to be handled with care and in an ethical way and with the appropriate support and help with a psychotherapist. And um, I don't think there's a magic pill for solving toxic leadership because um, if you're, if if you are a very, very toxic leader, you can't just take this pill and become a nice person. Um, But, but (laughs) for people who intend to become better versions of themselves and help themselves, this, this will be interesting one day where this field goes. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.